The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I'm going to introduce some of the guys to you here. Now, we have a really sort of, I don't know, eclectic collection of people because we're going to talk about bringing the gospel into the Rogue Valley, and uh, I think only one of us is actually from the Rogue Valley. Is that right? So. Is that true? That's, two? That's two? Two. All right, so we're going to start here. Westminster Presbyterian. This is Barnabas Sprinkle. It is the greatest name. <clears throat> right on. So. You don't have to share yet, but you'll get one here in a it's, second. It's the greatest name you could ever hope for if you're the pastor of a Presbyterian church, right. Barnabas Sprinkle. This is fantastic. And um, Barnabas comes to us just a couple of years ago from Georgia, correct? That's right. Yeah? All right. And then we have Greg Spires from First Baptist Church here in Medford, Oregon. <clears throat> yeah? Now, are you from Medford? I grew up in Medford. Yep. You, you grew up in Medford. Up in okay, Medford. so there's two. I'm sorry, there's two of them. And uh, Greg, Heritage People, this is our landlord, so be nice. <laughs> okay? Um, Kenner Gotsman from Rogue Valley Fellowship. You guys know Kenner? <clears throat> yeah. yeah? You're also from the Rogue Valley, yes? Oregon. From Oregon. Not the Rogue Valley, but Oregon. Right, yes. and you're yeah. meeting in a school also right yes. now, right? All right, just pump. Here we go. All right, exactly. cool. Loving it. Um, and then here we have, this is the new guy. Everybody say, hi, new guy. Hi, new guy. <laughs> this is, uh, this, well, it's not that new anymore, new. huh? Yeah, a little over a year. A yeah. little over a year? Yeah. So this is Dale Schaefer from First Nazarene Church there in Med, uh, Medford up there on the hill. And uh, he comes from Illinois, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Michigan originally by way of Illinois. Uh, Michigan by, by, way of Illinois. by way of Illinois. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, have a seat, and uh, we don't really know what we're going to do. I'm going to warn you guys in advance that we intentionally did not script this and didn't, um, didn't really spend a lot of time talking about exactly what we're going to go through and all this stuff because we wanted to have just sort of an organic conversation about um, what really we believe is the mission of all the churches. And so for us to come together and be able to talk about some of these things, as you can see, <clears throat> if you have a question, if you will text it to that phone number right there, and um, they'll, they'll get, a, get that in the back, and then at the end, we'll take a few of the questions and try to, try to be able to interact with you guys. And, um, and we'll just kind of go from there. So why don't, why don't we start with this? I'm going to read to you guys what our goal um, statement was out of this, and we'll go from that. Our goal in this event was this. How do we, the collective body of Christ, best reach the lost people of Medford, Oregon with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's our goal. How do we best reach people that don't know Jesus here in Medford? And the discussion, I think, has to start with the idea of culture and cultural engagement, which is what we're here to talk about. Um, really, I think all of us would agree. We all base everything in our mission of our individual churches on what the scriptures have to say. So what is the biblical mandate for this? Are we to go there? Are we to wait for them to come here? What are the scriptures that we would actually even base the idea of this mission on? Obviously, you jump right out with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, mm -hmm. and you start going. Jesus says very clearly he has commissioned his church to go into the world, making disciples, and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. I think that's a, a critical piece. So in going into the culture, you're not just saying, hey, come to Jesus and then continue to stay the way you are. Mm -hmm. You're saying, go make disciples, teach them to follow Jesus, and become like Jesus. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's an obedience part that right. falls into that, too. Right. And, and that's the exactly, going. Go ahead, Barnabas. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. I mean, the, the whole story of Christianity is God coming to earth for our salvation. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that incarnation is a model for us of, of going out and being where people are to, to love them. And going, 
as we leave, we enter culture right off the bat. So that brings us to tonight's conversation about cultural engagement. So it's as we go and make disciples, it doesn't take long for us to actually encounter a culture that is very different from the one that Christ is forming in us as his church and as an expression of the kingdom of God. And so then we have to begin to ask the question, how then do we engage that culture um, as the church, as the tangible expression of God's kingdom? And so that's kind of what the whole discussion begins to center around based on Matthew 28 and then going into a culture that already exists. How do we interact? And the, and the story of the redemptive work of Christ impacting people throughout scripture, really not just the New Testament, is a story written and experienced in the culture. Uh, you know, the very beginning of, of the church in Acts 2 is people hearing the good news in their language, not a, a foreign language, but even in their language in a miraculous way. So at the very beginning, it was a, a message that was intended to engage in the moment where people were, not for them to, to somehow exit their, their place and come and find the message. It was mm -hmm. the, and, and the Great Commission is to keep doing that mm -hmm. uh, to the furthest reaches of the earth. So, I love the fact that they could um, hear it in their language right. in a way they could understand. I mean, I think sometimes we don't always communicate the gospel in a way that people can understand it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a critical piece. Right, and, and I also think when we're critical of whether or not we ought to be culturally engaged, my first question is, do you do your service in English? Right. Then to some degree, you're seeking to be culturally engaged. <laughs> it's just to maybe a smaller degree. But Us Southern people sort of do it in English. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. right your form of English, I mean... <laughs> hey, we were here first, man. Don't look at me. <laughs> so do you say y'all? Do you say y'all? Yeah, you yeah. Do? That's yeah. what Jesus would do. Y'all. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so this idea, um, what, what really kind of goes down, this is something I've been kind of fired up about. People from Heritage are going to roll their eyes because they've heard me say this a million times. But this idea of a missional church versus a um, attractional model church, this is an important thing. Um, I, I think that the church, we've seen um, different paradigm shifts happen. You know, it, really when you study church history, it's just, a, it's just the history of pendulum swings back and forth. Um, <laughs> And I know for me, at least growing up in the Bible Belt, um, I, I kind of was this idea that the church is separate from the culture, and what we would do is put things together and hope that people come to the church. Not going into the culture, but hoping that people would come. And, and a really great example of this that I had mentioned I wanted to bring up kind of as a foundation is so we did the I Heart Rogue Valley event. And a part of what we did with the I Heart Rogue Valley event was to bring Nick Vujicic to come in. And um, it was something the Heart Campaign people did. And so we had this big, you know, um, event that night. Now, it's really interesting how that day played out because the first part of the day is us going into the culture, right, and serving and doing all this stuff. The second half of the day is this big gathering that we had invited all these people to. And we bring in this big, you know, and I almost said televangelist. He's not a televangelist. Uh, just evangelist to come in and speak. <laughs> Um, and so, um, I don't, I don't, you guys didn't get to see it. I shared this with you guys a little later, but because we were sort of the lead team on that, I got to see all the results of everything. And so out of this event, um, the youth night that we had with Nick Vujicic and the big event at the fairground that we did, um, we had a total of about 200 to 250, I don't remember the exact number, people that came forward and filled out those cards. We would say that they made professions for Christ. And so, as you guys know, we wanted to do the follow-up with all of them. And so as we did that and we parsed it out to different churches and got people to help with all those phone calls, what we discovered, um, I don't know that we found any, not one single person that was unchurched and outside the church that came and made a decision for Jesus Christ at that event. 
what we had were 250 church people who had either gotten, you know, I don't know, walked away in their faith or whatever and made rededications. And praise God for that. That's good. But it also wasn't the goal of the event. And so you have this idea between let's create an event, Billy Graham style or whatever, and draw people in versus the church actually going into the culture. Go. Well, the, well, the idea of living as a, <laughs> yeah, right? Well, it's the idea of living as a sent people. And mm-hmm. I, I think you're going to get into Jeremiah 29 probably in a little mm-hmm. bit. I don't want to steal your thunder on that. but um, it's, it's not really thunder. It's more of a grumble. It's more of a grumble? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think there's some thunder in that, man. No, there because is. Because you get into there, and there's this idea that the people of God were a people who lived in exile. They were in a place that wasn't really their place. Mm-hmm. And that we as Christians today are people who are in exile. We're, we're aliens living mm-hmm. in a foreign land. We, this isn't our home, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you live as people that are living in a world that's not your home? Mm-hmm. And if you look at what God says to his people in Jeremiah, he says you live as a missional people mm-hmm. within that community. You don't fight against the culture you live in. You bless the community in which you live in. And mm-hmm. I don't know how far you're going to go into that, but it's, it's good stuff. Uh, I'm not. You you're not? It. Can just I go? Keep going. I'm just, just keep stealing going. it, man. I'm sorry. Steal it's it. Do so it. Good. <laughs> um, so in Jeremiah 29, we, you all know the part that says... Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans right. to bless you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. He's speaking to an exiled people. If you jump up a couple of verses into verse 7, you find out that he tells them to go um, build houses, to let their children marry. He says to bless the community. Um, seek the peace and the prosperity of the community in which you have found yourself as you live in exile. I think that's a pretty good commission it's even more for us today. That, because it's in, more than that even. Because, because in their prosperity, you will find your own prosperity. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's even more than that, though, because in that passage, they had, the people of Israel had false prophets that were telling them, live outside the city, don't have anything to do with the city there, these are pagan, wicked people, you need to stay outside the city and retain your identity. And, you know, of course, the Babylonians, their whole goal was to get you to immerse into and lose your identity so that the people of Israel would no longer exist. And I think it's interesting that the Bible actually calls those who said, stay out of it, stay away from everyone and maintain your identity, it calls them false prophets. Right? And they were the ones saying, don't immerse. And then, you know, Jeremiah comes in and says, no, go in, be part of the culture, you know, raise children, all of those sorts of things. Um, And and in doing that, you would retain your identity as well. So it's kind of a both and situation. You you see Jesus speaking to that. You know, it's a big jump from Jeremiah to to Jesus. But in John 17, when Jesus is uh, praying his high priestly prayer, he speaks to the reality that his church is first called out, you know, from the world that they're a part of, set aside to be different, his chosen holy ones. But then he goes on and says, just as you, Father, have sent me, so I am sending them. And so it, our presence in the community and the culture that we find ourselves in is not um, a misstep or a mistake by the Father. It's not as though the moment we gave our life to Christ, he made a mistake and, and forgot us and left us here and is just waiting to come get us. Mm-hmm. But it's intentional um, and part of his sovereign plan in furthering the kingdom of God throughout all eternity. And he's doing that uh, as an expression through the church. And so it's that tension that we experience um, of learning to be in the world and yet not of it. Because I, although I didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, uh, mm-hmm. I grew up in um, a deep uh, Christian subculture of Christian high school, Christian radio, Christian coffee shops, where we really pulled back and isolated Ourself, mm-hmm. um, And one of the things uh, pastorally and just individually that I've walked through and continue to struggle with is um, what creates that? What is that tension in us? And I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, mm-hmm. um, be it fear, be it, you know, morality. What is it that causes us to either feel like um, or just retreat, to pull back? What are you guys' thoughts? 
I, I think, think fear is absolutely right. I mean, how do we, I was just talking with one of my staff today, how do we bless a culture of which we are afraid? You know, and it, afraid in the sense of I'm, I'm scared of the violence that I see. Uh, I'm scared of my children being somehow affected by this culture and going into this culture and just blending with this culture and losing our identity. Um, you know, so we really do have to hold that tension between not just pulling out, but at the same time being a different people in this culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I, I think even in that Jeremiah passage, you have a sense of the identity of the people blessing the Babylonians. You have, they, they ought to be the people of God blessing as the people of God would. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to, to, to suggest that when we engage the culture, whether it be in serving the community or whether it be in meeting needs, there is a benefit to that, but the benefit is always limited if it's absent any redemptive uh, work. Uh, you know, a painted house will at some point need new paint. Uh, food will be eaten and money that's given will be spent, but, but the redemptive work of Christ is eternal. So I do think there's blessing we can grant, but it will always be limited by time if it's absent any disciple-making effort, mm -hmm. which which I think is critically important, and that's one of the tensions we get, is how do you do that? That's, yeah, I mean, that's, how do you make the leap then from we helped, but we want to help eternally, not just this week? Well, let that's me hold you off on that one, because we're coming up here too. Um, before we go to that, let's talk about this, because who was it said it's fear-based? Was that you? Um, I don't remember who. Yeah, they were but, talking. So for we me afraid. growing we're up. We're afraid, help us. By the way, you wore a tie. What in the world? Tore a like, tie. you're just trying to show it's, us up? It's nice, man. But I went untucked with jeans. Nice. Oh, okay. All right. That's nice. Um, he so just wants to show me he's the smartest one here. He sat in the middle, too. Oh, he, uh, the young guys. So, hey, um, so let, let's talk about this for a minute. Engaging the culture versus being countercultural. Because I, when, I, when I was growing up, I mean, that was kind of the fear. Like, um, you don't want to go be part of that world. I can remember even parents, say, you know, freaking out about who I was friends with and all that stuff. Because the fear was that I'm going to get the culture on me if you will. Like, if I go be part of that scene, I'm going to be part of that scene, um, as opposed to, you know, going in to try to affect it and be a missionary in it. How do you address those kind of fears with your people? Well, can I just, I'm going to be countercultural on your question. Um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my issues with that question, not to, I think it's a fair question, is we tend to, when we decide to be countercultural, we're, we're arbitrary on how we are. So we sort of pick and choose the areas in which we want to be countercultural, depending on sort of our, our background. And so I think the question in its, itself, which I think is a fair one, also reveals somewhat a degree of that we want to control what it ought to look like, how we compare to the culture uh, around us. So we, we tend to think of values that we grew up with, things that we're comfortable with, and yet in areas that are extremely biblical, we are not always strong to be countercultural. So for one, one countercultural uh, biblical mandate is the unity of humankind regardless of race. Mm -hmm. And yet we're seeing in our culture significant division around race. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't necessarily see the church with a strong call to be countercultural around race. And so one of my concerns is that church, we ought to sometimes push the culture to the, to the right place. We tend to be a little bit arbitrary in where we want to do it. We do that in places that we're comfortable or values we've grown up with mm -hmm. and don't allow scripture to sort of inform us. We ought to be countercultural here in a place that actually might even challenge our own yeah, culture. What I'm hearing you say is that there are places in scripture where we're called to live counterculturally, yeah. that we're a little uncomfortable going there Correct. because it's not true to the values that we were raised that with. That we were raised with. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so it's even uncomfortable for us. It, it even challenges us to some degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
question of, of, of fear, I, I really do think it comes down to identity. Mm -hmm. um, we need to have a distinct identity as Christians, but we need to form that identity. I mean, when I'm looking at my kids, do I send my kids to public school or to Grace or something like that, homeschool, whatever? Um, am I confident that I am forming a Christian identity in my children so that when they go to their public school, as they do, uh, they're able to be salt and light in that place. Because mm -hmm. if they're not very salty or not very lit, then, you know, I found that real growth, like real growth happens when there's tension. Yeah. That, with, that without tension and without trouble and trial and challenge to my faith, then my faith doesn't grow very well. Mm -hmm. And so if I live in an environment where it's easy for me to live out, you know, the, the kingdom, if you will, or at least the values or be a good moral person, then there's very little challenge to my faith. My faith doesn't grow. But when I move towards the culture and I bring the gospel to it, my faith is stretched. It's, it's expanded. It grows. Um, I have to rely on God and the Holy Spirit in ways I never had to before. And part of the job of the church or a parent really is to create the Christian end of that tension. Make sure they're just not just out there. Mm -hmm. So how do you well, do that? Well, you know, I think exactly right, Dale, of having the conversation with your kid. Okay, so you saw these, these people doing this, and that's not what we believe. You hear them talking that way, and that's not what mm -hmm. we do, um, and here's why. Mm -hmm. Well, and you, you introduce your family to the gospel at mm -hmm. a very, very early age, yeah. and you live it out yourself. I right. mean, your children, if they don't see the gospel in your life first, you can't, first of all, you can't bring the gospel to anyone unless it's first come to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I, wow, try, mm -hmm. to, try to go change culture apart from the power of the gospel changing you. You'll never get anywhere, right. and that happens with kids they got to mm -hmm. see it in you first right I think you also have to actually introduce them to some of that as well so uh, an example is um, when I was growing up you know the Simpsons were first kicking off and I can remember in my household my parents thought that's the worst show in the history of the world and which it, sadly is mellow now but that that was kind of the thing well um some years ago I don't know 10 years ago or whatever I was talking to a pastor friend of mine and he was saying that he and his family and kids regularly sit down and watch the Simpsons and I was like you can't do that. You didn't grow up Baptist, that's for sure. You know, just that kind of thing. Um, but he said, no, this is what we do. I, I want to develop in my children a Christian worldview that gives them the ability to look at things and parse stuff out and go, okay, that's funny, but that's funny, but should we laugh at that? And he goes, and so we will watch it, and we'll pause after jokes, and we'll talk about that. Well, my upbringing was completely different. I, was, I grew up, well, my parents thought they had me in the Christian bubble, but I had a little escape hatch. I got out all the time. <laughs> but um, it, it was none of that stuff. And so, you know, you hear of like pastor kid syndrome, that, that they've never, never been taught to kind of walk their own faith out in, if you will, a hostile environment. And then they move off to college or someplace and go crazy. And uh, I think we're seeing negative fallout for some of those kind of things, yeah? Well, in Christ being the example, you know, as disciples of Christ, um, and ultimately, I mean, we're talking about parenting our children, but in the same sense, um, as Christians and pastoring churches, and you asked earlier, how do, we, um, how do we teach or how do we encourage, how do we exhort our congregations to uh, engage the culture in a way that isn't fear-driven? Because uh, most decisions that are made out of fear uh, usually don't go well, and the scripture speaks to that reality that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, mm -hmm. but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Um, but at the same time, again, as disciples of Christ, always looking to Christ um, as, our, uh, as our example. And again, we've talked to the reality that, that Jesus Christ was sent into this world. Uh, John 1, 1, or John in the chapter, we start over, John chapter 1, uh, it says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, that he tabernacled among us, that he lived and he walked and he talked um, and he touched and he interacted with all sorts of things um, in culture. Uh, but in a way, 
that did not compromise his identity right. as the Son of God and as the Messiah and the Christ. And he did so by this conviction of being always submitted to the will of the Father mm -hmm. and living his life by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what he instructs us as his disciples to do. And so whether it's parenting our children, uh, pastoring in our churches, again, pointing, fixing our eyes on Christ, who is the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, and looking at his example. And Christ reached, he crossed racial boundaries, he crossed social boundaries, he crossed economic boundaries. He was always <clears throat> ministering on the margins um, of the society of that day. And we kind of look at that and we teach it and we, we almost uh, beautify it in one sense, like it was this, at the time, it was very radical and, and caused a lot of controversy. And so we have, uh, again, going back to a scriptural precedence for engaging culture in a way that is countercultural, that ministers on the margins, that uh, both proclaims the gospel, but both expresses it in action. You know, you talked about painting a house. Uh, Christ is the perfect embodiment of that. And the closer we come to Christ, the more we're discipled by him, the more he shapes the way we think. Um, I think the more effective we'll be in being uh, culturally engaged. Uh, one of the one of the pushbacks that I've heard on that and have received a few times is, "Well, he was Jesus. <laughs> you know, you're not Jesus, mm -hmm. so we really can't live as counterculturally as Jesus did. We really can't resist temptation the way that Jesus did. You know, because he's Jesus, because he's God, and, and we're not." What do you, what do you, what do you how do you respond to that? To that? Yeah. What do you no, say I'm curious that? how you respond to that, and I'll tell you what I do, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect point of Well, I think my, my answer to that would be just how I opened it, with the reality of, of Christ living his life, submitted to the will of the Father. He, he always talks about that. Um, I'm here to do my Father's will, which is, again, what he asks us to do. And he does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, if we truly believe and teach that his Spirit lives in us, and, you know, as Ephesians talks about resurrection power works on our behalf uh, through the power of the Spirit, um, then through him and in him, uh, he, can, he can make us those type of disciples, you know, but it's a process. It's a, it's a tension point. Um, it's not easy. It's not flawless. But again, that doesn't give us cause to retreat um, and just hide ourselves in our little communes. Well, you know, think, like, of, think about it. The salt and light idea is if all the salt stays in the salt shaker, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. You don't need a flashlight on a bright, sunny day. So at some point, you do have to go out into those places. But at the same time, if you go into, let's say you're like, you, you're going to go to the local pub, you're going to go to a local bar, and you're going to just try to meet people and minister to people over there. Okay, but if, if you go and get drunk just like them, then you're not salt or light either, right? So there's a difference where you, you want to go into the world, but then you still need to somehow look different and show people a difference there, yeah. Yeah, I... I with what you were saying there, Kenner, I totally agree with everything you said. Absolutely, it's a process through the Holy Spirit of, of growing more like Christ. A at the same time, on the question of, well, that was Jesus, I think we need to live in a constant state of repentance. We, we need to, to live with a deep awareness of how far I am from the ideal of Christ. And I need to be looking for ways to improve, looking for ways of growing. Um, I, I learned that from, from, from you guys, from other people. Um, so often we Christians tend to think that we, the Christian bubble is the way God wants the world. And the right. outside world is, oh man, that's evil. Right. And, and you know, when Jesus came, I'm sure there were a whole lot of Pharisees who thought exactly that way. And Jesus was like, no, you got that backwards, guys. There's a whole lot of people coming to the kingdom of heaven ahead of you guys. And, and I suspect he'd tell me the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I just need to live in a constant state of, okay, so where, you mentioned, you know, race, you know, not too long ago in this culture, there were a whole lot of churches who were preaching racism. 
You know, we, we need to ask, where are we missing it? Um, and, and Lord, show us. So what is the role of the church then right now? Organizationally, let's start with. I mean, don't go all Christianese on me. The people are the church. Let's start the organization right now. What, is, what do you believe your roles are within your, each of your churches in, in dealing with this issue with your people? I'm just trying to steal sheep from Greg. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, I'm just glad one of us is honest. You know, I'm just glad one of us is honest. No, I appreciate that. But, you know, but let's be honest about that. So, I mean, put, put, <laughs> we're, we're all trying to steal Greg's sheep. But, um, but no, but think about it. Go back to the Nick Voyages thing, right? I mean, it was a Christian event. And I think if all of us were honest, right, wouldn't we say that most of the new people that ever walk through our doors on a given Sunday morning, they're not coming, they're not unchurched. They came from one of your churches. And, and you know, we talk a lot about church hopping. People, we hate church hopping. We really we do. Just say that. We just, just stop. Put it out there. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that's Find a, a family it and hang out. In crazy, it drives us crazy. But, but the idea of what, what do you feel your job is as an organizational well, church. I think, I, I mean, primarily, like we've already touched on it to be redundant, is make disciples. And in terms of how that relates to the culture, you don't necessarily change culture. You change the people. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the culture is just simply a reflection of the people of that culture. And, and you, don't, you don't change people in any other means other than a supernatural transformation through Christ. Amen. And that only occurs... Through relationship with others. So one of the ways to engage the culture is have people who, exactly what Dale, what you said, have come to a passionate understanding of their need of the gospel. You know, pre-conversion, at conversion, and post-conversion, and just like you alluded to, woke up today again, man, I still need it. And that is going to change my heart. Hopefully it will change the heart of the people at FBC. And my, my hope would be that would also change the people of the culture in their neighborhoods. That I think that, in my mind, becomes one of our primary uh, roles. Not in, and also in, in equipping folks to be out there and, and engaged uh, yeah. in, in life transformation relationship. I really land on the equipping piece. Uh, you know, I fall back to, first of all, I'm in love with the book of Ephesians. I think Paul's letter to the Ephesian church is, is beautiful. It's got three chapters of gorgeous theology about the gospel, and then three chapters about how the church should organize for mission. I think it's, I think it's just the handbook for mm-hmm. the local church. And in Ephesians chapter 4, um, it, it gives us kind of the organizational structure, right, for what a church should do to organize for mission, for cultural engagement. So Ephesians 4, I'm just going to read um, about the role of pastors and apostles. And he says, Ephesians 4, um, verse 11 says, So Christ himself who's the head of the church, has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers, which were pastors and teachers here. Maybe, maybe you have an apostle gift. You're a church planner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I planted a church. So maybe there's an apostolic gift there. But <gasps> anyway, we fall in that I category. I just got lucky. You got lucky? Yeah, yeah I hear you. I, I think God's blessing, Blind squirrel, man. nuts. Yeah, <laughs> hey, God's blessing. It's good. Um, but the role of those, those leaders in the church, in verse 12, is to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity and faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the role of a pastor and the role of a church is to equip people for the acts of service that God's created them for. Mm-hmm. Even earlier in Ephesians, my congregation will get sick of hearing me quote this verse, but Ephesians 2.10 says that we are um, created, we're God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And so if our congregations are full of people 
who have been recreated in Jesus Christ to do good works, our primary task is to preach Christ and equip them to do the good works that God's prepared for them to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's mm-hmm. a pretty key part of that. Yeah, I, I think maybe the tension in that is that we've gone through seasons where churches were built more on sort of an attitude of consumerism. I mean, uh, we have this idea, we even call them service, right? And so a lot, of, a lot of us, and we've had these conversations a lot as we've dealt with things, whether it's church hopping or whatever, and I know I'll step on toes now, but whatever. Um, the idea that you go to a restaurant and you're like, oh, I, it, the food was good, but the service was bad. I don't think we'll go back there again. Or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, because church became, for a lo- in a lot of places, an attractional thing, put on the best show, put on the best music, who, who's the best speaker, um, the mega churches grew, satellite campuses we're seeing that's not working out so well lately. Um, so that approach versus I'm going to go to church Sunday because I have work to do this week right, for Jesus. Right. And so I need to go to church to be filled up so that I can go and carry out that mission. I, Whatever you win people with is what you keep them with. Mm-hmm. So if you win people with attraction and a great service, then you're going to have to keep getting better and better at that, put on a bigger and better show mm-hmm. in order to keep folks. But you're never really going to equip and send them out. But if you win people with the gospel and then mm-hmm. let the gospel take root in their lives and send them mm-hmm. out, then you'll keep them on mission that way too. Mm-hmm. I just think it, the dog and pony show doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a reshaping like you you're saying. you have a pony at the Nazarene church? That we used to. We got rid of the pony. <laughs> <laughs> John, I had no idea. We need to talk about ponies at our next. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's definitely a reshaping of <clears throat> the way we, we view church and the nature of church, um, the purpose of the church, and obviously that happens um, through the teaching of Scripture, but also through uh, conversations. It goes back to that again that that identity of being God's. I think Dale, you said being God's sent people. The church uh, exists as, again, that tangible expression of the kingdom of God. Uh, As a community, like even tonight, um, this is an expression of what it looks like to live under the reign of Christ as king. Um, When we talk about kingdom, we don't necessarily limit it to place. We talk about the rule of God. And in theory, tonight, in this place, with all of us uh, that are committed to Christ coming together, we are an expression of what it looks like uh, to live under the the reign of God. And so in our communities, our churches, they should be a contrast community to the culture that exists. And that affects issues of race, um, economics, um, politics, all sorts of things. The the reaches of the gospel are as far reaching as the, the effect of sin. And that's playing itself out in our churches uh, in theory, but that we have to actually see church that way, not as a place that I go for an hour and a half on any given Sunday and I rotate to different churches. Um, it's only an hour teach- at our place. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anybody, anybody who's tired of me. I count the attendance this Sunday. Just you like are stealing sheep. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got a there. pony. Why, I could go for an hour and a half. He's he's got got an hour. You can't be pony. Yeah, yeah. Come on. So it's, it's definitely that, again, challenging that, uh, but, but consumerism, uh, materialism, uh, efficiency, these are all uh, idols in our culture that the church has adopted. And we gauge our success based on that metric. And so the metric of the way we view success as church ha- actually has to change to being, uh, living a more faithful lifestyle as the church, which is an expression of the kingdom of God, engaging our success and answering the questions based on that metric, as opposed to how many people do I have? What, are the, the, what was the offering today? Are people just cleaning up their act? And so it starts obviously with leadership, but that trickles down really into how we view 
uh, again, the purpose, the nature, identity of the church. For us at RVF, uh, we're actually going to start a 13-week series on the church uh, on Wednesday nights in small groups with our elders and stuff, where we actually begin to dialogue about this in an environment where we can actually talk about then what does it look like to live as God sent people? Because we also have created a, a, a culture in church that sits and listens, and there's not a lot of dialogue and activity um, and opportunities to engage that. And so that's one of the practical ways uh, for us that that's being fleshed out is, again, noticing this challenge before us and then saying, how do we encounter that and interact with that and encourage people to live their true identity as God's sent people in the world? I think a part that's critically important because that means that a part of the equipping isn't just simply biblical content delivery. Right. We have to somehow uh, help ourselves and our churches understand how does the truth and power of the gospel, what are the implications in my home and in my parenting and in my, in my marriage? And, and there, I think one of the challenges we have as Christians is there are many times where we question if, if it does connect with even our own home. And so then it's even harder to try and convince somebody it's going to have an impact in your home. But then even beyond just simply connecting with our own culture is seeing that in our community, there is a number of cultures. There isn't yeah. one right. culture. And, and if you go to a, a church conference on growth or, or uh, how to get your, your church to be the next big thing, it's always going to be talking about young families and children. And do we want to reach young families with children? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a duh. But I've never gone to a conference where they said, we're going to show you how to reach retirees. Mm -hmm. or, or, or we're going to show you how to, to reach uh, impoverished community, communities. It's, and I think there are a number of cultures, and we have to understand as an equipped church, does the gospel matter at the manor? Mm -hmm. well, and it does. You know, and, but it matters in a much different way, and it shows up in a different way. Maybe then it does in East Medford or West Medford or at the gospel mission. And if we're truly equipped, we have to understand how does that connect in each of those contexts. Uh, and if I can't do that, then really I just have content. I was just having this exact conversation, I think this past Sunday night, in a, in a group that I'm a part of. And uh, we've got some folks that are dealing with end-of-life issues. They're, you know, they're parenting their parents at this point. And their parents are just going, why am I still here? You know, why is God still putting breath in my lungs every day? And they're going, you know, is there any fruitful work that God has left for me in this season? And so, you know, as pastors, we have to speak to that too. You know, it's not just reaching a young family. How, how do you speak to the person who, you know, is holding on to life, but God's still putting breath in their lungs and you're going, well, there's a purpose for you being here. How do you help that person? How do you coach them to understand and equip them to live out their last days um, in a fruitful way? I think it's worth noticing how, the intent of outreach to young families is the survival of the institution church. Does that make sense? I, 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 when, I, when I hear these conference things, I do not hear people say, boy, young families have a greater need for the gospel than the older people or than the, um, the impoverished youth or whatever else. I hear them saying, these are people who can actually financially support your church. <laughs> uh, we need to recognize that, and we need to repent of that. Uh, we need to recognize that metric. Mm -hmm. I think one of the cool things about... <clears throat> the five of us, and we've talked about this. And you're talking about the various uh, subcultures within culture yeah. and what role do we play? And I think sometimes uh, pastoring, uh, we can feel the pressure that our 
particular local church body is to meet all of these needs and right. to be an expression yeah. uh, of all the various cultures. And so it's, it's part of it is looking at where God has uniquely placed uh, each one of us. And we are all located at different places uh, in the valley. We all come from different backgrounds. And we're recognizing and discerning um, kind of our unique calls uh, to the Rogue Valley. And again, as we partner and minister together and share what God is doing in our local congregations, the Rogue Valley as a whole is reached and the kingdom is furthered and, and together we're an expression uh, of the kingdom of God. And That's good because so, I could never look as cool as you, man. Dude, I'm serious, man. The You've hips revive. You have that cool hat. Oh, absolutely. You got you that flat yeah. cap, man. You yeah, rock the flat so cap cool. like crazy. That I want awesome. that. Dale, this would be a good time, I think, that to, for you to talk. We don't have the whiteboard, but remember that thing you were talking board. about the no, circles I, in the church and what? No, the I don't, idea. I don't because remember. a lot of times, what the expectation from for some people, especially if your idea of church yeah. is more uh, attractional in nature, is that yeah, we support cultural engagement by tithing to the church and making sure the pastor does a good job. But that may not be. I mean, what we've seen is that's not exactly very effective. So yeah, really, just a, a couple of things that you know we've talked about this before. But it's it's the idea that there's a model for doing church. It was really common and popular in kind of the 50s and 60s, where a congregation understood that it's it pulled its resource together for the purpose of identifying a pastor who then would reach a community. Mm -hmm. And that's not a missional model. The biblical model is you flip that, and that a congregation brings a pastor alongside of itself for the purpose of equipping the congregation to be sent out to do ministry within a community. Um, you think about a, a church that has three or four ministers, they can't really impact a community just with the ministers doing that work. You have to understand that we're all ministers who have been sent by God, and pastors are there for the purpose of equipping people for ministry. Mm -hmm. And now you take a congregation of a couple hundred or a thousand, and you send them into a community. And man, that's, that's salty stuff right there. <laughs> so have you ever had anybody come up to you after service, or right before service is even better, and they go, Hey, I brought my cousin. She's not a believer. Make sure you get him. All the time. <laughs> you ever had that? All the time. So what would your response to that person be? Well, I'm going to do my best to present the gospel every weekend, man. So yeah, I'm going to do my right. best. That person, that's an opportunity. I want to make mm -hmm. the most of every opportunity. I but. also believe that uh, we need to equip our congregations to be able to share their faith. I, I love, so this is a, a tool. If you're ever looking for a tool to teach people to share their faith, I love the three-story evangelism process because it's not, you know, memorize five verses. It's, it's know your story and know the change that God's brought in your life and be able to share that story with someone. Um, that's been really helpful for us. Mm -hmm. Three-story being my story, your story, God's story. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Thanks for filling in the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone here has heard that, yeah. Barnabas is the smart one among us, just so you're wondering. <laughs> he is. First time I met you, man, we went to lunch, and I was like, this guy is really smart. Really? And had, the first and time we went to lunch, I thought, man, this guy is so amazing. So that's good. No, that's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. That's good. I feel and like it's a dumb one in this the first time every you time guys we get went together. to lunch, the three of us were wondering why we didn't get invited. That's yeah. good. That's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> oh, well. So what we're talking about now is, then is moving away from the organizational structure of the church and mobilizing individual people in the church to go be missionaries in their own environment, correct? And one of the hardest parts of that for, for me, in my own heart, much less in the heart of my church, is we see the Apostle Paul and he says something really striking. He says, I would be condemned to hell if the Jews would come to... Would, would seek salvation. I mean, he, he seeks for his own, he's willing to take on self-condemnation. So the deep love that he had for really the culture he was trying to reach, although also called to the Gentiles, was so significant that he was willing to suffer not only death, but eternal death. And I, and I don't know 
Because one of the things we have to understand, of course, we already know it, is um, you know, without that love, it, it really, be, the, 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 the efficacy of it is always going to be very limited. It always is going to be born out of a deep, compassionate, I love you, and I will continue to love you after you reject Christ. Mm-hmm. And when I, I'll still show up, uh, even after you've said I'm a kooky, and I, I don't know what's wrong with you. And, and, and I will love you once you're saved and you fall back into alcoholism. And that kind of deep love for the brokenness and the people around us, saved and unsaved, mm-hmm. is something that, as a pastor, how do you teach that? That's not content. Yeah, love mm-hmm. people. I mean, that is something that's spirit-driven. It's miraculous. That's why I think a part of cultural engagement has to be prayer, because that's where God transforms our own heart to just to love the culture, the people within the culture to such a degree that we want them to be in, shaped into the image of Christ, because that's the best thing for them. But if they reject it, we're not going to reject them. Um, and and that, I, I think, is a challenge. That's one of those things where I can't, I, I get, there's no solution for that. How do you teach people to love? Uh, but, I, but that's a prayer of mine, is that we would love the people around us. We have to take an honest look at ourselves and, and ask, that's a motivation question. Uh, what is my motivation for, for sharing my faith? Is it, um, you know, I feel better about myself by, by helping you, by loving you, by sharing the gospel with you? Um, and in the end, I end up actually objectifying you for some sense of self-gratification, right, right. which is not the way of Christ. Yeah. Uh, again, we see all throughout the gospels, um, Christ motivated by compassion, uh, love. It's something that um, just just pours out of him and motivates him uh, to to love tangibly. Um, and I think you're, you're spot on where that's something that is given to us uh, by the Holy Spirit as he changes our, our mind, transforms our heart, and makes us more like him. Um, but that happens through through our time of, of prayer. But we have to take an honest look at ourselves and say, man, there's still things in me. Um, I'm motivated for, for wrong reasons. And, and so uh, viewing people, I think another one is viewing people um, as made in the image of God, you know, no matter who they are. You know, it's self-reflection, beginning with where I'm at, what God has done for me, is certainly a motivating factor in, in loving the other. Um, but also seeing each person, um, no matter what state they're at in life, they're, they're created in the Imago Dei. Um, and God, God loves them and God cares for them. And that is reason and motivation enough for me to love and to care. And then from there, I can take what Jesus says, you know, loving somebody the way I would want to be loved, mm-hmm. you know, and, and self-sacrificing and you know, right. implications. I think also being that. more and more aware of the gospel in our own lives, because yeah. when we start to think we're the ones that have arrived, it becomes a lot harder to be mm-hmm. compassionate on someone else because we're looking down the whole time. But, you know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so the more that I consider the glory of God, which is nowhere more apparent than in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I realize my own wickedness, my own sinfulness, and the grace he's poured out on me, um, that keeps me humble in a place where it's like, I'm not looking at other people going, I wish we could reach them. I'm like, I'm in them. I'm, I'm one, I'm here. I'm among them, and I'm a recipient of, of God's grace, and I want to be able to, to pour into them as well. Yeah. This is, uh, I mean, it's maybe a little bit of a different direction, but it's just something that God's been really working in my heart lately around how do you bring the gospel into a community. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that God's really using in people's lives to, to leverage um, for the sake of the gospel is suffering. 
And what triggered that was when you started talking about, um, I think when Greg started talking about suffering a little bit, and this idea that God can take those crucible moments in our lives, and if the gospels become real to us, um, that, that gospel in our lives and our ability to endure suffering um, and, to, and to remain strong in our faith in the face of suffering is a witness to those around us that makes them go, oh, that's legit. You know, it's only God at work in someone that could enable them to remain strong in, in faith and to love the way they're loving in the midst of, of brokenness and suffering like they're experiencing right now. And I'm, I'm just seeing that a lot um, in circles of influence that I run in where people are leveraging suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I see that a lot in Paul's life in the early church. I think the gospel oftentimes was communicated through suffering on the part of God's people. Th there's an encouraging word for you tonight. Want to reach Medford? Suffer. <laughs> the, the other thing suffering does is it allows other people to love us. You know, so often we come at culture with the perspective of I have the answer because I have the gospel. And so I'm supposed to be the one to love and I'm supposed to be the one to reach out. And, and, and when we're going through suffering, often I've found um, I have engaged with other people because they've engaged with me in a new and loving way. Um, and, and it's powerful to receive service from love from other people as well. Mm -hmm. What about, man, we're running out. This is already <laughs> is it, taking is it way time longer for than we intended. But um, let me ask this. What we're talking about in culture, cultural engagement, I mean, all of us, I, from the I Heart Rogue Valley event to the different things each of our churches are doing um, to reach out and, and engage people, how do you balance meeting a need versus bringing the gospel to bear in those needs? So, so, uh, social activism or social justice versus gospel proclamation. I, I think one of the dangerous shifts that's taking place in the church is a shift away from Jesus and towards justice. And so we, we believe that when we bring justice, that, um, that we're bringing Jesus and the gospel comes through that. Now, justice is one part of gospel, but apart from helping people to have a real personal encounter with Jesus, we're, we're not bringing the full gospel to bear on someone's life. And so, yes, we serve, but there always has to be a sense that in our service, we're not just doing justice work, but that we're communicating the gospel as well. They've got to know the rationale behind why we're bringing justice. Right, right. What's funny and, is historically, the evangelical church has been shifting more toward justice, and the more progressive church is shifting more toward Jesus. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny to see how the th these are groups the that, that split apart and are actually coming back together. The pendulum just keeps swinging. Yep. So, yeah. and I think... I think Meeting needs justice ministry is, I, th I would not want to say it's not beneficial because it is, you know, but, but like I said before, the, it's beneficial within time. Um, and the only way you attain eternal benefit is through Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'm concerned a little bit. The other is when we're doing justice ministry or mercy ministry <clears throat> and not somehow seeking to bring the, the claims of Christ to bear on it. The other thing is, and this is going to sound weird, um, ministering to the needs of a community is easier than saving someone for eternity. Mm -hmm. And because to save someone for eternity requires God to die and raise again. Mm -hmm. And so really, in a, frankly, we can have a certain level of satisfaction and significance in a ministry context if we did something, you know, just something, you know, mowed a lawn, painted a house, and we should do those things. The danger is if we think we did everything and because, but the other part is the harder part. It's the eternal part, and frankly, it's the part that only God can do, but we have a part in it. And, and I think that's one of the things where what I, I, what I, it's easier to paint a house than try to see someone come to eternal life. And I, I think that's one of those things where we have to be careful that we don't, 
don't go for the easier thing. Yeah, but you have to, you have to build a relationship with someone. I mean, in order to earn the right to share Christ right. with them. Yeah. I mean, there's some practical things. We just got done doing a series not long ago about you know sharing a meal with someone that that is not from your culture. So go go have a meal with someone that that doesn't believe in Jesus. You know, go have a meal with someone that's not the same skin color as you. Um, go have a, a meal with someone that wasn't raised in the same kind of family structure that you were raised in and build a relationship with someone. It's incredible what happens when you begin to do that and you begin to earn the right and then serve that person to share Christ with them. Yeah. I think it's a mistake to, to try to divorce the two, uh, yeah. gospel in proclamation and gospel in deed. Uh, it's both. It's, it's fully engaging in, in love, which to, to look at somebody and say loving you it means meeting your needs at some level. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, James speaks to that reality with, with uh, his example of faith. And then obviously in the life of Christ, again, he, he doesn't just teach gospel proclamation without true compassion, acts of mercy, deeds of justice. Now, he didn't have the expectation that in that time frame, he was going to rid the world of right. all injustice, right. which is, right. I think, sometimes the, the misconception is we're going to, this, this triumphalistic attitude that in the here and now, the church is going to permeate the world right. and it's going to be the perfect place. Um, you know, but again, it, it, it's not reason not to teach. He also didn't love. believe that he was going to save the entire world, right? I mean, build the, this, this whole movement that happens during his lifetime. Right. Right. He says, greater things than I've done, you will do. Jesus' church was 120 people after he died and ascended to heaven, right? So, I mean, boy, I mean, some of us in this room, we're seeing greater things, and that's pretty awesome. I think love, you're right, love really needs to be the, the key point. Sometimes the ways that we even try to meet needs aren't particularly loving. It's, I'm meeting your need because I want to, and it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not love. And I'll meet it in the way I deem it should be met. And, and you really <laughs> need to be grateful. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, and I'm doing it because I want to save you for all of eternity. There you um, go. Yeah. <laughs> not just because yeah. I love you. Yeah, like Jesus. Like Jesus. Hey, uh, okay, so whiplash uh, change the subject here because we got to bring this home at some point here. Um, so for all these people that are right here, they're going to work tomorrow. Um, they just heard us philosophize or whatever you want to call it ab- about some of this stuff. But how does that play out in their life? And one of the things we had talked about previously is um, we have viewed as a culture. Or, or as a um, evangelicalism in the last, let's say, 30 years, um, you know, you've got, and I'll step on some toes here, right-wing, um, political, Fox News. That's how we change culture. Bring people into the church and get them saved, and then get sort of the more Judeo-Christian ethics into the political environment. But that's the people that actually have influence in that outside of your vote, that's few and far between. So for everyone here, what does this mean for them? If, if we've, we've determined there's a biblical mandate to engage the culture around them, and each person here lives in a unique culture, um, the culture at, for a school teacher is different from, than the culture for an engineer, for example. Well, I, so, I think, for one thing, to understand that each and every one of us has a, a place where we fit, that God has called us to, that he's gifted us to, and as the body of Christ, as, as the scripture describes, every single one of us has a role, and every single role is to some degree different than another. And, and there's significant value in that for me as a believer to say, God has called me to a particular place. And, and in that process of making disciples, I have a fit in that. And I, I've got a place. It may be teaching, it may be evangelizing, it may be serving, it may be encouraging. And then in terms of where I am, I think we look at our spheres of influence and we start in a home. Yep. We, we start in that, that, that sphere that's closest to us and say, how does... If I believe the gospel is true, how does that show up in my marriage? 
How does that show up in how I love my wife? How does that show up in how I love my children? Does, does grace have anything to speak about how I discipline my children? It might a little, I think. Um, and then from there, how do I then, what's my sphere of influence in, in my friends, in, in, the, in my neighborhood, in my associates? And then it, even at work, is how, how do, if the gospel is true, how do I work? Does that influence the pace at which I work? Does it influence the, the manner in which I pr- approach my work? I, I think it really does, and I actually think that speaks to people. Uh, and so I, I think one of the ways I like to think about it is take what I believe to be true about the gospel. Does it have an impact? And then think of those sphere of influences coming out from my home. And how does that implicate itself in my life with the relationships I have going out from there? I think, I, I think back to the Nick Vujicic example. Like when we put on the Christian event, we got Christian people. But the vast majority of people that come into our church, at least, that are unchurched, they always have the same story, and it's a friend invited me. Absolutely. Every time. It's never, oh, I just was driving down the street and saw the heritage sign and figured I would just wander in. That never happens. Um, but the, the issue is in imprinting the gospel into people so that as they see other people that are hurting, even if they don't feel confident enough to have the answer, if you will, for them in that, but I would hope that we would get them to that point, that they would just say, hey, come with me, come hang out with us, and then you're, you're bringing people into a, a new environment as well. I think sometimes you can feel the weight to do something huge for Jesus, right? To have this massive evangelistic impact with mm-hmm. your life. And I shared this with our congregation the other day. But, you know, really, what if you just decide that, that you might not be able to change everyone's world, but you could change someone's world? And in the next year, there might be one person that God might have you for you to have a significant gospel impact with. And begin praying, God, who's that one person this next year that you have for me to be positioned to have a significant gospel impact in this next year? I mean, I don't know, there's 300 or so of us in this room tonight, and what if 300 people would have a significant gospel impact in one person's life this year um, through just praying and seeking God's direction and learning to love and build a relationship with that person? And then ask yourself the, the really simple question, is there anyone in my circle of influence that doesn't know Jesus? or Are the only people I hang out with Christians? And fix that. Fix that. <laughs> you got neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, do we have any questions, Jeremy? Did you get us any? Do you want to throw those up? Can we take up an offering tonight so all the speakers can get a pair of skinny jeans and tattoos to reach yes. the culture better? Yes. Um, and, and Kinner's tie. And Kinner's tie. I was so How about that? No. <laughs> I almost wore skinny jeans tonight, but the whole Christmas Thanksgiving season messed that game all oh, up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All skinny right. jeans on me is a bad idea. <laughs> all right. So where in Scripture are we actually called to be against the culture, i.e. countercultural? I, th- I think that the way that's worded is, is dangerous. Uh, I think the word against is a very, uh, I think it's, it's, it's hostile. Yeah. And when you come at somebody with a hostile attitude, um, it, it automatically puts people on the defensive. So uh, again, counterculture, obviously we've used that phrase. Um, I, I, use the, I, the, I use the phrase quite a bit um, as a church learning to be, um, as we exist faithfully as a church to the call to be the church, um, we are a, uh, a faithful presence of God's kingdom. So as we learn what God's kingdom looks like and what it values as it pertains to justice, righteousness, grace, mercy, forgiveness, um, we become uh, a witness to that. And simultaneously, as we exist that way, 
we're also prophetic. We, 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 we're a counterculture as we more faithfully uh, adhere to our call as a church. I would be careful using the word uh, to be against the culture. We're called to exist in the culture, but in a way that is faithful to the kingdom of God. Yeah. I like John 17, 15. He, Jesus' prayer says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so I think when we, when we are talking countercultural, I think we would all agree our, our idea here is that you're in the culture, but there's, there's a way that we live within the culture that is different. different. Yeah. So, um, so I can go to the pub and go meet people and, and try to build relationships, but maybe I'm the one driving everyone home because I'm not going in there and getting intoxicated every time. You know, I mean, there, there's a, a way where just we can be in the culture without... Not, just not every time. Every time. But it depends yeah. on if it's my night or not. I've heard the stories, man. I've heard the stories. We can certainly think of times like, Sorry. you know, Ezra made the people give away their intermarriage wives. I mean, we can think of times that Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees because of the way you were acting. Or, or really, in his culture, ran through the temple with a whip. You know, says we need to completely do this differently. Uh, so there are a bunch of examples in Scripture, most of the prophets, really challenging things within their culture. Um, our culture is as permeated with sin as we are because it's made of people. Uh, so I wouldn't say against culture. I would say against the sins of our culture. And every culture has exactly. a sin matrix. Because yeah. we're in the culture. Yeah. yeah. Right? We are in the culture. I think you, specifically look at it. I mean, I think you have yeah. to look at the justice type issues, right? So, I mean, we're dealing with issues of like human trafficking that are right. taking on. Right. And sex trafficking that are taking place. And, you, I mean, any place where someone's rights are being, you know, trampled upon. I mean, you have mm. to be against those things. When we yeah. call people the truth, I mean, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And... When you call people the truth, at times it's going to cast into contrast what is occurring in the culture. And in, in, in the scripture, we see there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And that is a, a, a truth, especially the culture of that time, that was very different than what was known. And it's simply calling the people of a culture to the truth of what Christ is proclaiming is true about people. And uh, so I would agree. I mean, to say we're against culture would... It feels like we're saying we're against people, but we certainly are going to call people to the truth of the love of Christ and how he identifies him in, in the image of God. And, uh, and I, I just think it's really important the way we do it. I, I think yeah. back, Kenner, just what you said, you know, I mean, um, I love First Peter chapter 3 where, um, you know, this passage by heart in uh, verse 15, you know, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. And we always forget the last part of it, but do this with gentleness and respect. Right. right. You know, we don't come as enemies. We don't come as enemies. Right. We do it with gentleness and respect, always. And it's oftentimes uh, initiated by the life that we're living, the testimony of just our changed life, living counterculturally, you know, where, again, the sin matrix of our culture is being, uh, you know, changed in us. We value different things. We gauge success differently. And that causes people to ask you, you know, why, like First Peter 3.15, why do you live that way? Very rarely is those, those conversations come about because I'm on the other side of the fence yelling that their culture is so wrong. Yeah. You know, again, I think of First Thessalonians where um, the, the church had a testimony of turning from idols and that testimony spread throughout Macedonia. And it was a changed life. And I think one of the challenges we face in my own life, personally, my family, and, and our church is, again, our lives are so uh, blended in with the culture. Yeah, live we, a questionable life, yeah. right? Make people ask questions about yeah. your life. Why, why is your life like that? Exactly. And I think that that's, it's deeper than what we wear and where we eat. And, you know, it's, again, it's embodying the values 
of the kingdom of God, which are so different than, than the kingdoms of this world. And I want to see enough Christians out there making enough changes that uh, it makes an impact that people are like, whoa, what is going on here? I, I love in, in, uh, in Ephesus when it's the Silver Ephesian Smith. silversmiths who start a riot because they're saying, there's so many people giving up idolatry, we're not making any money here. Uh, you know, if Christians are living as Christians, if actually just the body of Christ would start living by Christian values, certain industries would go under in our country. Um, and you know, we're just going to have to let them look after themselves. Yeah. This is a good question here. I feel too busy loving my wife and kids and doing my job to reach out. Are there seasons of rightful inaction? Boy, uh, boy, if you could disciple your wife and children, man, that's a homer. I mean, you nailed it. Uh, you've sent two children or however many children you might have into a generation you're not going to see, and they're going to reach a culture you don't understand or, or you don't know. Um, I, I would call any loving and discipling my wife and my children anything but inactive. And are there times where it requires most of my attention? Yeah, yeah, there are many of those times. And so, I, but I wouldn't call it a season of inaction. I would say you have patterns of living in which you can engage with other people as you're living out your life with yeah. your family. I mean, just for an example, um, we have a daughter that's away at college, but when she was in junior high school and senior high school, she played basketball and volleyball. That put us in a social network with other parents of volleyball and basketball players. And, and it would be totally inappropriate for me as a follower of Jesus to say, you know, Jesus, I am so busy taking care of my family that I'm not going to get to know the parent that's sitting next to me on the bleacher at this basketball game because I'm just taking care of my family. I mean, I, frankly, I think that's sin. And so I don't believe there are ever a season where there's rightful inaction. I think if you have your eyes open, God has placed you and positioned you within the life rhythms that you have in your family next to people who don't know Jesus right now. So I don't think there is ever a season. It just may not look like, you know, teaching a Sunday school class or going on a missions trip right now. I think that also it's, it, it, it's rooted in um, an understanding of discipleship as action as opposed to being. Um, if I see discipleship and and reaching out, loving my neighbor, sharing my faith is something I do. Again, I can schedule that. I can program that. And there's just, there's just not enough hours in the days to program that. So is it okay? Um, and again, I empathize with that. I look at that. I look at my calendar and, and things and I go, you know what? There's days I just want to turn it off. But as I, as, as the scriptures and the Holy Spirit shapes my mind to see myself, not, I'm not a disciple based on my action, but according to who I am and who Christ is making me to be, just like Dale's saying. If I'm Coaching volleyball. You got patterns, right? I'm right there. You You're there. I mean? I'm a disciple placed in community, in relationship. It's not something I flick on, flick off, and is gauged based on what I'm doing. It's actually who I am. Yeah, so if you're employed somewhere, you got to eat, right? So why not eat with a coworker that doesn't know Jesus? Intentional instead of additional. Yeah, right. It's not additional, not so much an addition to, but within your regular patterns of living, how do I engage the culture? In our society, we have cultures that we consider anathema, i.e. homosexuals. How do we break through these areas? Jesus looked out on Jerusalem. He had compassion. Um, when Jesus looked at the brokenness of a city, he had compassion. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, let me tell you, there are an awful lot of folks who have lived their lives like sheep without a shepherd. And he is, his first response wasn't judgment. It was compassion. And I think that's where we start. Right. Right. I think we need to understand it, it's easy to consider some of these categories an anathema, but if you look at Romans 1, um, Paul says this is just the natural out, outreach or, or 
end result of sin, that this is where it goes. So if someone just continues to live this life without the grace of Jesus Christ a part of it, that's where it goes. And you can't read Romans 1 without going into Romans 2 mm -hmm. and the top part of that passage where mm -hmm. um, he basically says, you do the same things. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, you're looking out here at all the brokenness in the world around you, but you're really no better. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we need to repent of our lack of love toward people who sin differently from us. So often, you know, we hear the great phrase, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. We're not good at that. <laughs> we, we, we tend to hate people who sin differently. Um, we need to recognize that God came in the person of Jesus Christ to save sinners out of a passionate love for the lost. And if we don't love those people, and, in, in, and I say those people to whoever those people might be, because we do label them, we do push them, uh, I think the whole culture of America right now is pointing out how little love we Christians have had for homosexual people. And we need to love first. We need to have grace first. And, and discipleship comes too, right? We, we, yeah. we call people to discipleship, but first there's grace, and then there's the call to discipleship. And Kenner, you talked about it earlier, the Imago Dei in people. Um, at some point, you have to stop labeling people and see the image of God in them. I think we tend to see people on the fall side of things, right? The brokenness, the sin. And we're not very good at seeing the Imago Dei inside of someone who's a sinner. Well, and there's, it's, no, it's not true that there's a person who is a homosexual. There's a person who has various different patterns of behavior to their life, but there are, that's a, there's a lot more to their life than, than, than one part. Yeah, you can't sum me up in my sexuality. I'm exactly sorry. right. I think of Jesus, too, you know, being accused of being a friend of sinners. You know, he had relationships with people that the, the, particularly the religious community of the day uh, accused him of being a drunkard and, and hanging out with, with questionable people. And because of that, um, it was hard to, to tag Jesus as against this, against that, because at the end of the day, he goes, no, I really have a relationship with this person. I care about this person. I love this person. And as we as Christians, again, learn um, to, to truly care and love for people, again, that uh, are still caught in um, the, the vices of sin, whatever that looks like, um, and even in our own life, you know, uh, but to be friends, it, you can't be accused of, of, of being homophobic if you have, you know, I got this guy that I meet with and I care for and we do lunch and, you know, and he's, he's gay, but we're talking about life and the gospel and, yeah. and he views it this way and I view it that way, but at the end of the day, I really care yeah. and I want this guy to be converted or they can't, you know, go back to the racism thing. Um, you know, I, I think as we learn to, again, live with and love the other differently in a very tangible, real way, it makes the culture, it makes the, it difficult for the culture to accuse Christians of being something yeah. because our actions actually speak differently, well, even though we, we have do a different worldview about yeah, these things. We shun people based on their sin. I mean, there's even <laughs> churches like Westboro is the famous one. Their website address is godhatesfags.com. That's their actual website address. <laughs> And what we end up doing is we shun people based on their sin when the Bible actually says we're supposed to be judging and shunning with regards to the sin within, within the, the church, right? sin within the church, within the church. <laughs> and friends with people that are outside the church that aren't, that are sinners. And we, we do that backwards. Yeah. yeah. And I think the model that Christ showed us is the burden of whether or not we love is, is not on defined by how we get to say we love the right. burden of whether or not we love someone is if they would testify that. They are loved by us because that was the model Christ showed us is he said, I will love you. And Philippians 2 says, I actually will humble myself to nothingness 
in my, as a means to making sure you would recognize I love you. So the burden then becomes on us not just to simply say, I love people. The burden is I, that love is occurring when, when they would testify that we do. And I, I think this speaks to what you're saying. I don't know, in terms of an evangelical community, I don't know that we've excelled at that. Um, understatement of the year, maybe. Possibly. Kenner, you and I get to sit this one out. Um, our denominations a black eye to our witness that there is one kingdom. How do you view <laughs> denominations? Because you guys are non-denominational, right? Something like you that. Know, yeah, I grew up non-denomin. That's just another denomination. That's exactly it. It's a whole different tribe, right? I think I'll speak to this. Uh, the, the denominations are a black eye only to the degree that people are in general. You know, churches are filled with people, denominational and non-denominational, and so... Uh, a particular a tradition or heritage of a, of a church heritage free one thanks for the um, thanks for that yeah. <laughs> thanks for right. the plug yeah there it is um it's it's people and so have denominations erred of course they have um are are distinctives okay yes yeah that is okay uh, if i devalue you because of a distinctive within my particular heritage um that's a problem boom um, but what's interesting, I'll try to be quick on this so that others can speak to it. Um, John 17, which you referred to already, Jesus said, if you want the world to know that I'm from God, you will be one. I mean, of all the things he could have said, it could have been big miracles, it could have been a million different things he could have said, they will know I'm from God if you are one. And so that's where that can be dangerous, when we're not one. And that's what tonight, to me, is that's about. It. Absolutely. Is we're saying the world, even though this may be a room full of church people, the world knows Jesus is God and from God because we're saying we're one. Despite or and encouraged by some of the distinctives that we have within our own particular traditions. I think a lot of times... Um, some people think of denominations as primarily being alignment for the sake of theology and that we're right and you're wrong in theology. Um, so for example, the denomination I'm a part of, I'm aligned with not so much because of theology as much as because of praxis. Um, I'm aligned with them for the sake of mission accomplishment. It's a connectional church, it's an international church that has you know, members worldwide, has mission opportunities worldwide that I'm connected to, that it is easier to engage my folks in mission than it would be if we were trying to figure all of that out on our own. So it actually multiplies mission rather than limits mission. Yeah. So it's for the sake of mission accomplishment. I think it becomes a black eye if you allow it to be something that separates you and you would say, hey, I wouldn't sit around with a group of guys like this and hang out with them and have our people worship together. That's when it, I think it becomes a black eye. Right, and that's been the fruit really from a lot of this stuff over the last little while is that um, we found that where we were a valley full of churches largely competing for the same kind of church people as we've got to get to know each other and spend time with one another we were able to turn our attentions away from some of that and, and you guys know this we've been able to support one another in those things hey so and so showed up at your church um, or at our church I think they were at yours right I'll and send so. them back I'll send you know, <laughs> some of that um, but, but instead being able to come together and, and encourage one another in these things is really really good um, last one here with the high percentage of young people dropping away from the church when they leave school or the family home, is there anything we can do as the local church? So there's actually research that's been done on this. Um, Barna's done some research and some others. But a couple of things. One is authentic faith by parents. That's the mm -hmm. first determining factor yep. of whether or not... In uh, every study, too. Yep, every yep. study will tell you that the determining factor of whether or not a child stays connected to Christ and the church 
following graduation from high school is the authentic faith of the parents. So is the gospel real in the parent's life? So parents, no pressure there, okay? Um, <clears throat> doesn't guarantee it, but it's doesn't guarantee one it. factor. <laughs> Does not guarantee it. Um, a, a second key one is that they are engaged in a local church, that they're actually regularly engaged in a local church. And then a third one, and this one I think it should be incredibly eye-opening, is that they are serving in the church or in the community and using the gifts that God has given to them. So what we find is that it's less important for a student to sit in a classroom at church than it is for them to serve another student or someone else. And so if you ask me, where would I rather have a teenager that's a part of my church engaged in the life of the church? Would I have them in a Sunday school class or would I have them serving in a children's ministry environment or greeting as a, as a greeter at our doors? I will pick greeting as a greeter at the doors and serving in a children's ministry every single time because it makes faith sticky. Good way of saying it, sticky faith. Yeah. Anyone else on that one? Well, I think it's a lot of it is about what we have been talking about here. If we have a false dichotomy between what happens in church and what happens everywhere else in our life, then as soon as a student or an adult like me goes somewhere other than the church, does it, does it connect the dots? Right. And if we, we have a church culture that says you do this at church, but everywhere else you do something different, we have set someone up to say, this is pretend. It's just a fairy tale we do on Sunday to kind of keep, keep things rolling. But if we say, no, this, makes, this has implications in every area of our, your life, and, and mom and dad and me, you know, this is how this works out. Then when I get to that place, wherever it is, a new job or, or, or a school, I already have an understanding of where that gospel makes sense in the school environment and elsewhere. It's not a fairy tale just for Sunday morning. Right. That's a priority issue as well, and this steps on a lot of toes, but a lot of times church, and, and again, we're talking bigger than just Sunday morning, we're talking involvement, mission, um, is priority until it comes up against grades at school or sports, sports on right. Sunday, you know, the God of our culture that we all bow down to and worship. Um, Whoa. We're easy. We're into it. We're in a gym, yeah. We're into <laughs> it until it interferes with something I actually value at a deeper level. And again, that's where that culture has really influenced us. And as parents and Christian parents, um, we really got to check our value system. And again, what is success? Is it, is it state championships and, and 4.0s? Uh, at the expense of, uh, again, relationship, community involvement, service in a, in a local church, uh, those things. And we have to, you know, pastor, we challenge those. You guys as parents have to challenge those and actually embody that. Um, one, you have to live that out. That goes back to that authentic. You can't, you can't have your kid challenge, you know, challenge that in your kid and then you, <laughs> you totally value it yourself. Right. It has to change in the home. So. I think this has been, too, one of the, the good um, results of what we're seeing is sort of a gospel revival over the last, you know, six, eight years in that the church, you know, if the, if the question is what can we do as a local church, teach kids the gospel. Like, don't teach them morals. Don't right. teach them that. Teach them the gospel. Because if a kid has been genuinely changed by the gospel, they're not going to walk away when they go off to college. But what I was taught, for example, growing up was do this, don't do this. And uh, all it did was make the uh, don't do this all that more enticing. Um, I think one other thing is truly uh, spiritual disciplines in people's lives. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I started uh, my own quiet time of prayer and Bible study, and that was a daily thing that was supported by my youth group. Um, of my youth group in high school, the ones that I, that I know of, the ones who had a quiet time that was set up 
and, and had that discipline in their lives are walking with the Lord right now. Mm -hmm. Those who didn't are not. Um, I really think, and I, and I know that's just a very small sample set, but um, I think it was in, reinforced by our families. I think the other thing is, so often kids hang out at youth group uh, and then they go to college. Well, people say, well, why didn't they go back to church? They were never in church to start with. They were in youth group. Yeah. <laughs> are we connecting oh, them into the life of church? Now, yeah. Are yeah. Sure, are we connecting <laughs> them into the life of church or not? That's a whole other oh. round table right hey, there, man. Welcome. <laughs> hey, come back next month, you know? No. <laughs> Is the table uh, going to show up at a certain point? Are we, are, that's the real question what? I have is, where's the table? The what? The, the, the round table. table. We already oh, had this discussion. Oh. You know the answer to this. <laughs> it's in progress. It's All coming. Right. <laughs> no. No, I, I hope that um, our goal from this was, was really, for one reason, to show kind of the unity that we have with one another here in the churches, whether you're aware of it yet or not. Um, also to be reminded of the mandate for these things and the, the plans that God has for us, um, the, the importance of us. I mean, look. You are God's plan A for reaching Medford for Jesus Christ. And there's no plan B. It's you. It's us. Um, and uh, I, I think we're now in a time where we're seeing that the idea of, of this, the giant programs and the Christian bubble and hope they come in, we live in a culture that doesn't do that anymore. Um, but you live in cultures right now where you have influence and access to people that we will never be able to reach until they reach the gospel. So, um, so hopefully some of this has stirred up some stuff and we'll just continue some conversation even in how we lead our churches and everything moving forward um, because obviously these are things people have wrestled with since the beginning of Christianity, the pendulum, you know what I mean? Um, I don't think we solved anything tonight, um, but Kenner looked good in a tie and we all got to hang out. That's so, right. <laughs> yeah. You do look good. That's very nice. Mm -hmm. That was creepy. Yeah. Sorry. Barnabas, why don't you... Uh, <laughs> No, you already did. Greg, will you do us a favor, man, and just close us in prayer? And if you would, just pray blessing and, and guidance for us, the church overall, in accomplishing this mission moving forward. And then it's going to be time for fellowship. So let's pray. God, we just come to you and we just thank you, God, that you saved us, that you saw us lost in our wallowing in our own sin, and you sent Jesus, and he died for us, and you stirred in our heart, and we believed saved us and so now we have an eternity to look forward to we're asking god that you would do that for medford right and for jackson county that the churches here the people here that you would uh grant us such a deep love for the lost of this community that we might uh, do what we may by your strength to reach them with the power of the gospel of jesus christ i pray god that you would as as jeff said that you would bless us as you have promised that we would do even greater things than these. By the power of your spirit, we would see many come to know you uh, for salvation from their sin. And God, for those of us who are Christians tonight who maybe have heard the conversation and, and felt discouragement and guilt and shame and said, well, I'm never gonna be able to do any of that. I ask God right now uh, that you would just grant by the spirit peace and the grace that just overflows, that you love each and every one of us and that we don't have to earn your favor, we don't have to earn your love or your pleasure, you love us because of Jesus. So God, we just thank you for tonight and the unity you've granted us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.